Thank you all for praying. Hopefully we'll see them back here reasonably soon, knowing Jason and Roxy probably Sunday. Tonight, if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, we'll pick up in verse 19 tonight. Can I ask you a question? Why are you here? Why are you here tonight? Why do we normally come to church? I would suggest to you that for most of us, it is to draw near to God. That's the main reason that we go to church. It's the real reason that we fellowship. It is, to a large degree, in a practical sense, the reason that we gather together. It's to draw near or nearer to God. And as we come to these next 11 verses or so, and as we look at them, I want to again turn your attention to the reason that we have this book. Most of you could probably name the world's only monotheistic religions, mono meaning one, theistic meaning God, so one God religions. They're pretty simple. It's Islam, Judaism, and biblical Christianity. They're the only ones that have a single God. Every other religion on the face of the earth has multiple gods, at, and some of them in the thousands, like Hinduism. So you can exclude immediately all of the, all of the plural theistic religions, polytheistic religions, because you can't draw near to gods. You can be near one and not near another. So in monotheism, where there is simply one God and he's worshipped, there's only two that actually attempt to draw near to God because Allah can't be drawn near to. The Quran plainly states that Allah wills as Allah wills. And he doesn't really concern himself with the affairs of man. He's simply an overseer. He's actually really judge to a large degree. So we can exclude all of those people. So we boil it down to Judaism and Christianity. And here's why this is important. Judaism has been around for a long time. Uh, more than a thousand years longer than biblical Christianity. But for that time that it existed prior to the coming of the Messiah, the Jews knew all there was to know about getting as close to God as you possibly could at the time. And so if you were a Jew, you could get only so close to God. But you could never personally get real close to God. And the reason that that's true is the Old Testament system, Judaism itself, actually forbade everyone except for the high priest to get anywhere near God's presence. You couldn't do it personally. And so as we now sit here some 3,000 plus years later, we find ourselves in a completely different situation. Because as we've come tonight, we've worshipped the Lord, as we draw near to God in our own private devotional time and prayer time, we can get as close to God as we want to get. We can snuggle right up next to Him. 
We can go into His presence and into His throne room. There is nowhere we are excluded from as His kids. Because there's a huge difference between religion and relationship. We now have a relationship. What the Jews had was a religion that foreshadowed the coming relationship. And so tonight, a study I've entitled, Drawing Near to God. And of course, it's the thing that we want to do as the body of Christ. I I want to get nearer to God. I want to hang out with Him. I want to be in His presence. I want Him in my life. And the beauty is, is that that's now possible. And so, the author of the book of Hebrews continues this uh, very, very deep doctrinal section to where we find that we can, in fact, draw near to God. And to the Jew, that was brand new news. That was something they really couldn't wrap their heads around. And so I pray tonight that you'll see a couple of things. You'll see the futility of religion in general, but you'll also see the wonder of the relationship that you now have in Christ Jesus. So would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you again for just the, the beauty of your word. Lord, reminding us even of the futility of religion. Lord, that, that which is our attempt to reach you. You reached down to us through the life of Christ and through his sacrifice. Lord, you, Jesus, on Calvary's cross, uh, reached your arms wide to each of us and, and invited us in. And so, God, we can draw near to you. And we pray that we would do that as we study your word. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 19 here in Hebrews 7, for the law, and I want you to really look at this very carefully, for the law made nothing perfect. Would you please underline that in your Bibles? Because there are people who are tempted to believe that the Old Testament system and the law was capable of making men perfect at that time. It's simply not true. It was never said, never intended, couldn't happen. Nobody got saved by following the law, period. It was incapable of saving men's souls. It was only a foreshadowing of things that were to come. It served a purpose. It obviously was ordained of God. It was the best that could be done at that point in time. But the law made nothing Perfect, And to some degree, it actually only exacerbated the problem because it did make sin very visible. If you go through the Old Testament, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and you start marking all of the things that they were required to do and keep, uh, all of the standards for which people could get as close as they could to God at that time, you would find out it was a near impossibility to even get close for a few seconds much less to dwell in his presence as we now can, as the body of Christ. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing of a, notice this, and you're going to see the word better many times here in the book of Hebrews, a better hope. There's a better high priest. We're going to find out there's a better covenant. Here we have a better hope. And see, when we think of the word hope, for us, it's kind of, in, in our American society, it's almost like wishing, right? When we hope for something, well, I hope the best for you. That, that's kind of wishful thinking, is it not? 
In this case, that's not what hope means. Hope is an expectant reality. Hope is an expectant reality. In other words, it is what it is, and it is only yet to come. That's the only reason that it's not right now. It's something we look forward to, but what we look forward to is absolute, absolutely certain. You need to lock that in. Because the hope in Christ Jesus is not like, well, I hope he lets me in. I hope he saved my soul. I hope, I hope, I hope, like people hope, you know, well, I, I hope the Packers win the Super Bowl. Not going to happen this year. You know, we think of hope from a very different perspective than what is being described here. It's certain. It simply hasn't happened yet, but it will. Is the bringing of a better hope through which we, individual, we draw near to God. In other words, that hope that is certain, that is fully going to be completed yet future, when we're in that hope, we draw near to God. When we're in Christ Jesus, we draw near to God. The law had its limitations. And there's an interesting corollary, and I'll draw your attention to it. If you remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, many people use this to kind of bolster exactly the opposite of what it actually intends to say. And it says there in verse 17 of Matthew 5, verses 17 actually and 18, and as Jesus speaking, and you remember he said this, He said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. So people automatically read that and they go, okay, see, the law is still completely in force. And it's because they misread what follows. For assuredly, I say to you, these are the words of Jesus, till heaven and earth pass away, not one yote, not one tittle, will by no means pass away from the law till it is all fulfilled. What it's saying is, is until it's all fulfilled, in other words, the finished work of Jesus Christ, the law still stands. It's still there. But it still only does what it was intended to do, which is to point men to Jesus, to point women to Jesus, to show us God's holy standards, to let us see exactly how far short we fall. It did not ever and does not still ever make anyone right in the eyes of the Lord. Only grace can do that. So Jesus didn't obliterate the law and the prophets, but he did fulfill them. And so in him, and when he comes again and establishes his new heaven and his new earth and his kingdom, which is forevermore, ultimately, which will be all of these glories that we'll have in heaven, in a practical sense, we'll have all of it. But as we sit here tonight and sit here today, we still have the finished work available to us. And so the law, which used to exist to simply draw men somewhere in the general vicinity, now points us to Jesus, and in him it's fulfilled. That's why he said and went on to say, In this is all of the law and all of the prophets fulfilled in this one thing that you should love, agape, your brother. 
Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, your neighbor as yourself. The law of love took the place of, in an eternal sense, the law, the prophets, and all, everything that was written in the Old Testament. It was all condensed down to doing exactly one thing, being in Christ Jesus. And so here in this wonderful book that we're currently studying, you can see how God was working all of that time in, in the Old Testament, working in the children of Israel, bringing them. Can you imagine how futile it was to, to try, and draw, try and draw near to God? As I've shared with you, and I will continue to reinforce it, when the children of Israel were encamped in the wilderness, there are some estimates that range as high as nearly 2 million people near the end of the wilderness wanderings would have been in that group after 40 years. When they left Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, entered into the wilderness of sin, and began to wander around, and when the instructions were given for the tabernacle, which was the portable temple, there may have been ultimately as many as two million people wandering in the desert. Now think of this for a second. There was exactly one on one day of the year, that could draw near to God. There was one out of two million that one day a year could enter into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and to beg for the forgiveness of sins for that period of time, and that's it. Couldn't ask for future sins, could only ask for the ones that had been committed, and then those were put away, they weren't actually dealt with. They were simply forestalled in judgment, is the best way to look at it. Not very close, is it? So to the average person, how secure do you think they felt in their relationship with God? I would suggest to you, not very. It was tenuous at best. That's what religion does. Religion never draws you into God's presence. Might get you someplace in general vicinity, but it doesn't provide for a relationship. Relationship has to come through one person to another person, and praise God, that person is Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And by Him, we have a constant intercessor with God the Father through Jesus the Son. We now have that personal relationship that they were looking forward to. You see, it was just a shadow. The Old Testament was a shadow, really, of what God would do through Jesus' Son. And, of course, the law certainly has its purposes. It taught us the consequences of sin. It certainly pointed people towards Christ. Uh, of all the people on earth, the Jewish people should have recognized the Messiah without question. You cannot read fully and understand the Old Testament and not go, Jesus is the guy. He is the Messiah. You see, a lot of people try and draw near to God through other means. And one of them, the most common one, is religion. It's church. Probably most of you know, maybe many of you have done this very thing. You live your life apart from God, you get in some kind of trouble, where do you go? I'll go to church and get it right with God. I can't tell you how many people come through the doors of the church thinking that being in this building is somehow closer to God. 
Now, do we attempt to point people to the Lord? Absolutely. We've already prayed that prayer tonight. But I can tell you this. You can be just as close to God standing underneath the tree someplace or out on a rock somewhere or at work or anywhere else on this planet as you will ever be sitting right here. Because God now dwells in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is Christ in you, your hope, that eternal expectancy that is your hope of glory. It's not being ethical. It's not being moral. It's not being philanthropic. It's not working diligently. It's not practicing some form of structured religion. It isn't giving to charitable causes. It is none of those things that draw you into the presence of God. What draws you into the presence of God is Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. That is the only way to get in the presence of God. And so what they looked forward to was a better hope that would allow them to do that. It was foreign to them. It was frightening to them. Quite frankly, I can't, I, I have often wondered what happened when someone was anointed the new high priest. To me, that would have been the scariest position on the planet Earth. I, I wouldn't have wanted, I said, you know what, I, I just remembered, I'm not actually from the Levitical order. I, I'm not related to Aaron in any way, shape, or form, and not you, Aaron, but the other Aaron. It would have been a horrifying thing to have happen to you. Because you were just a man. You were just like everybody else. And if you didn't follow the prescribed manner of sanctifying your own self and your own home and your own life, to walk into the presence of God on that one day a year, that one time a year on Yom Kippur, meant death to you. You would drop over dead. So it wasn't very comforting even for the high priest to draw near to God. Amen? I'd be shaking in my boots. Those bells would be going off on the bottom of my garment before I ever got in there. He's like, going, I hope I got it right. I hope I washed myself correctly. I don't, personally, I wouldn't have gone in. Just kill me now. It'd be easier. But because of the relationship that we have with Jesus, you have personal access to God. It is not the same. It's not religion. It's relationship. I can't, you know, for the Old Testament Jewish Christians, I think they probably could have imagined themselves walking into the Holy, Holy of Holies. But I think they would have very quickly reverted back to that old way of thinking. But we'll die if we go in there. And so the writer of Hebrews gives them this better hope. Speaks about your hope, my hope, the hope of grace. And we're going to see that it's really, as Jeremiah 31 is quoted here, you see the old way was on stone. Amen? It's what it was. I mean, you can kind of boil it down that way. It's an easy way to look at it. The old way of God was written in rock. And it was, thus says the Lord, and these ten things mostly thou shalt not do. But the new way is on the tablets of your heart. It's not written in stone, it's written in flesh. It's written by the hand of God and in you. And on you, and to you, and for you, and ultimately through you. You see, that's very different than pulling out ten commandments. 
I'm going, wow, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I've shared with you before. I wouldn't get past number one. Because at times we all have other gods. You know, for each, it could be all kinds of things. I think for most of America, it's money. There's a lot of other gods out there competing for our affections. But this new hope, this better hope, this perfect hope, which is a tremendous theme throughout the book of Hebrews. If you remember back in chapter 3, but Christ is faithful if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. You know, our hope is based on Jesus' faithfulness. Not on my ability to keep some set of rules and regulations, which makes me a Calvary pastor. My hope is not in that. I love Pastor Chuck as much as you can love a person on this earth. But my hope is not in Pastor Chuck. It's not. My hope is in Jesus. Chapter 6, we just saw, show yourself the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. In other words, as we join God where He's working, we get more certain about that certainty, do we not? That's why I've shared with you, when you're obedient, you have tons of assurance of that hope. When you're disobedient, you have zero assurance of that hope. The hope remains the same. The problem is you don't experience the hope because you're not expecting the hope because you're doing exactly the opposite of what the hope would require of you. You see, when I do what God asked me to do, then I'm hoping and I'm acting the same direction. But I can hope one way and act another, and when I do that, I don't have any certainty of that hope. Because my actions are saying something different than what I'm hoping for. If I'm hoping to go to the Super Bowl, then I kind of need to put some effort into letting someone know that I'd like to go to the Super Bowl. To sit around and go, well, I'd really like to go to the Super Bowl. And think it in your own head, probably not going to get you to the Super Bowl. Amen? So you start writing all of the players. You know, I think you are the best water boy ever. And I would be glad to shine your shoes at the super... You know, you write a bunch of notes and you act in a direction that might uh, might actually aid you in getting there. It's the same as true for us in our walks with the Lord. When I do what God's Word says and I act in a way that's consistent with the direction I'm going, which is heaven and my heavenly hope, and when I do that, I am more certain each day that I'm going to heaven. Chapter 6 also showed us that we who have fled take hold of the hope that is offered. You see, when I flee sin, there in in verse 18 of chapter 6, when I flee sin and I lay hold of the hope, the hope drags me along. But if I don't flee sin and I don't lay hold of the hope, then I'm kind of reaching for something that isn't there because I'm not participating in it. So this hope is an active hope. It's a better hope. It's something that works all the time. It's not something that works temporarily, you know, if I'm having a good day or if I went to church. That's why I asked you the question before I started. Why are you here? I hope it's because you want to draw near to God. And as you study the Word, and as you pray, and as you fellowship, and as you hang out with people in the body of Christ, and as you do the things that Scripture says, your hope actually becomes to you, in a very real sense, more expectant. You can trust it. You rely on it. It's more of who you are. You draw near to God. You get closer. In a practical sense, Christ has done all that is necessary to get you to heaven. 
But how close do you want to get to him before you get there? Hopefully it's real close. Hopefully you want to draw near to God. You see, this hope is how we draw near to God. We can enter God's presence because Jesus has already He's made us righteous in Christ. So we can go in. The question is, will we go in? Will you enter in? Will you pray? Will you do the things that God asks you to do? You see, our hope is, is not a vague wish. It's not hoping in hope, in other words. You ever notice how, well, I'm thinking of you, brother. What's that? You know, when you tell somebody you're thinking of them, that's kind of like saying, there's air. I mean, it does nothing. You can think all day long about somebody. It will not change a thing. Hoping in hope won't change a thing. You have to hope in something that's able to meet your expectations. That's why it's important that you're hoping in Christ Jesus, because he can meet your expectations. No one can snatch them out of my hands that are mine, says the Lord. You see, my hope is in him. My hope is not in some system that points me to him. That's what Judaism was. My hope is actually in the one who's able to do it and who is able to save to the uttermost and who can do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. You see, my hope is in the actual one, not some process. That's how I draw near. I start getting closer to him because he is the vehicle whereby those things occur. You know, very often, and, and, and again, I'm, I don't mean to, to say to you that you should disrespect the, the church, the building, the facility, the people that are involved in it, in leadership or pastors or any of those kind of things. But can I say to you, that's not where your hope lies. Your hope should not change because you've walked through those doors. Your hope shouldn't change because you're at work. Your hope shouldn't change because you're in school. Your hope shouldn't change because you're with believers or non-believers. Because your hope is in heaven. That's where your hope lies. And, and as I try and draw near to the heavenly, what happens is I push out the earthly. And, and as I grow closer to the Lord, then that heavenly reality becomes much, much clearer and closer in my view. See, if I want something, I am obliged, if I'm rational to go near it, right? To get closer to it. If you want a new car, you've got to go to a car dealer that has those cars. Amen? Pretty simple to understand, actually. If you want a new car, you have to not only go to the dealer, but you've got to find a salesman. Amen? And then you've got to go in and you've got to haggle. Amen? That's, that's what you do. And then you've got to go see the finance manager. You see, all these steps in this process are going towards the end result of buying a new car. It's the same with your relationship with the Lord. You've got to go through each one of those steps and process, not because the hope is uncertain, because you want to get closer every day to that reality, so you move that direction. That's how you help the hope, so to speak. And of course we do that. You know, mountaintops don't do that. Valleys don't do that. You can be as close to the Lord in your basement as you can at any retreat that you've ever been to. But you need to make sure that your hope is in Him and that you're moving that way. You know, some people, I think, almost delight in, in kind of 
the monastic thinking, you know, well, I'll just turn off all the lights and I'll get rid of the TV. And I'm not suggesting to you that TV's good. I'm just saying that you're not going to just get closer to God simply because you kicked out the world. You still have to go the direction he is. You still need to go the right way. It's good to get rid of the things that aren't of him, but it still can not draw you closer to God if you stay right there in some darkened room. Make sure that you're moving towards the Lord. Verse 20, it goes on now. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, and remember that we've already looked at, uh, that, that passage has already been quoted to us, for the Lord has sworn, sworn an oath and will not change. You're a priest forever. And he's going to say that again. That was found in actually Psalm 110. It's repeated. Uh, it's a similar oath that was there in Exodus 28. But Jesus, that he that's there, was not made without an oath. God swore an oath about him. Remember what I said to you? Not so with the Old Testament high priest. In fact, there was no, not one, not one spiritual qualification for the high priest. Didn't have to know the Pentateuch forward and backwards. Didn't have to quote any scripture. Didn't have to have any characteristics like God or like Christ. He simply had to be of a single family order. And he had about a hundred specific physical blemishes that he could not have. That's all you had to do to be a high priest. There was no oath that was sworn that this guy even had the character of God. He was just simply of the right family. He, he had the right physical statues, you know, characteristics. But he says, he, the one who's coming, was not made priest without an oath. For they become priest without an oath. The they is the Old Testament priest. But he with an oath by him who said, For the Lord has sworn and will not relent, for you are a priest forever, Forever, the Old Testament priests were not a priest forever. Remember, we went over this. Not a priest forever. They were a priest for however long they lived. Until they went into the Holy of Holies, unclean, and then they were dead. You were a priest forever after the, and according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's why that guy, as I shared with you before, is so important. Very, very strange dude. Predated Judaism. By almost a thousand years. And so Melchizedek's priesthood would be better than the order of Aaron and the Levites. By so much more, Jesus has become surety of, notice the next better, a better covenant. You see, the old covenant, the covenant first of Abraham, and then the covenant of David, those old covenants could only get you so close. And that's why the covenant that Jesus made, which we call the new covenant, that was sealed with his body and his blood, was so much more better. The old covenant had a time period. Matter of fact, it never had a perfect representative ever on the face of the earth. And I can draw your attention to the very first high priest, Aaron. Was he a perfect guy? Not on your life. Matter of fact, his first duties as high priest didn't go so well. And the generations that followed after him also did not go so well. That's why Jesus is so important. That's why his name is so important. Jesus was not without an oath. God swore an oath about him. It was a better hope, and he would give you the ability to draw near to God. 
God didn't need to take an oath himself because he couldn't swear on anything and he hired himself. And so he himself testified that this one Jesus would bring a better covenant than the old covenant. Very important to us as New Testament believers. Because we're prone, and here I'm going to say something you're not going to like to hear. We're prone when we get in trouble to want to go back to religion. We're prone when we get in trouble to want to go back to religion instead of relationship. Why? Because religion is much easier. Religion's real easy. You just go do your duties. You go to whatever church. You go to 57 services in a week. You start giving a little more than you've ever given in your entire life. You start doing all kinds of things for God. And all of a sudden, wow, I'm, I must be doing really good now. You see, the new covenant's not a covenant of do's and don'ts. It's a covenant of I wills. I will be their God, and they will be my people. It was the finishing of what the Old Testament couldn't do. Actually performed on it. So God ordained Jesus' priesthood, and it's explicit what he came to do. Even in his name, the, the name Jesus is actually from uh, Yeshua or Joshua, which in the Hebrew actually means Yahweh is salvation. So his name itself was a better covenant. That means that God himself is salvation. Jews didn't get that. Matter of fact, they understood that God was severely angry with them most of the time. That in fact, they were almost always in God's disfavor. But if Jesus, who said, I'll take them, is now the vehicle whereby we have a relationship with God, and I'll pay for their sins, then he himself becomes the very thing that we need. He is the new covenant. The better covenant is the one that is etched in his blood. And so it says here he became a guarantee. That word translated into English in the actual original language doesn't really mean guarantee like you and I think of it. It actually means a pledge. It means I pledged to do something. It was part of the covenant bond. And when you look at what that is, you see this better covenant was so much better that to the Jews they couldn't really even understand it because Jesus would be a priest forever. Hey, you know, you're in him, you're okay. He, he, guaranteed, the people's, he guaranteed the people's part. You see, an Old Testament covenant was always between two people or it could be two groups of people. Or it could be one person and a group of people. But it always had two very specific and always very different sets of rules that applied to the one person. And the one who was the guarantor, in essence, had the work to do, which during the Old Covenant times was the people. They had to do this if they wanted what God promised. When the New Covenant comes along, Jesus says, no, I've already done this. You can have it. He did both parts of the covenant. He said, I'll give my life for yours, and you can have the results of that by simply believing. There is nothing on your part. It's grace to you. Very different covenant. And a covenant that anybody can accept. You see, under the Old Testament covenant, you were in trouble. Basically, initially, upon becoming a Jew, if anything's stuck in your mind, I'm in trouble. I really have some issues with God. 
there's about 400,000 things that I'm not doing correctly, and I need to get them right. Otherwise, on the Day of Atonement, the priest isn't going to have, the high priest will not have enough time for me and my family, much less everybody else. So it was what you could do for God. Now it's what God has done for you. Very different and much better, as you can see, covenant. It's new and it's better because it allows us to go directly to God through Christ Jesus. The Old Testament, you couldn't go directly to God. You just didn't have that access. It wasn't open to you. Matter of fact, if you didn't know somebody who knew somebody, chances were you probably couldn't even get heard by the priestly class. There was a complete hierarchy of structure that allowed only certain people to talk to the priests that served in the temple courtyards. And so chances are you only kind of got even a foreshadowing of what was available, which wasn't much. A new covenant is so much better because human priests die and Christ doesn't. So as long as you live, your high priest in heaven is never going to fail to intercede for you. Amen? 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 As long as you, you can be on this earth, maybe you know they're going to come up with some new technology, not that I want any part of it. You're going to be able to, in another five years, you're going to be able to live to 120. Sounds like torture. <laughs> Don't want to go there. But even if you live to 120 years old, you're never going to run out of intercession by Jesus. He's not going to, you know, man, just 100 years was enough. Matter of fact, with Jeff, 60 years was probably enough. 120, way too long. You're not going to have that. His covenant is eternal. He's promised to get you all the way there. Not kind of, sort of close. Not once a year, you were pretty good with God. But all the way home to heaven. Much better covenant. All we need to do is believe Him at His word. The old covenant, there, there are so many contrasts here. The old covenant did not take away sin in a permanent sense. It just kind of stuck it on a shelf, in a binder, if you will, to be dealt with later. Forestalled in judgment. Man, can you imagine living under that? You ever thought what it would be like to know that your sins weren't totally dealt with yet? And that at any moment, God could just open that book and demand payment because they weren't paid for. They were put away. That's all the Old Testament did. It put them away. You didn't suffer for them. You had temporary forgiveness, if you will. They were they were still available for your judgment. And without the blood of Christ, every Old Testament saint would have been judged for all of those sins. But praise God, Jesus came. And those that died in faith received that same forgiveness that you and I now receive. Verse 23, it goes on to say, And now there's been many of those priests, not the ones that are priests forever, but the ones that are of the priesthood of Levi and of Aaron, since the death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. And the historian Josephus has estimated, the best estimate that I've ever seen is there are about 83 high priests that served Israel from the first high priest Aaron to the fall of the second temple in AD 70. So there were exactly, you know, someplace between 80 and 90 of them that had served 
and every one of them died. And so every time every one of them died, a new guy came on the scene. And he had his own specific ways about him and ways that he did things. He was supposed to be completely doing everything God's way, according to the book of Exodus, principally. But each one served. So you literally could have, you know, had your day of atonement under multiple high priests. What if one of them was wrong? You never knew. What if one of them went in and he just joked about the, well, yeah, I I went in and I put my hands on the scapegoat and everything's fine. But he didn't do it. Because they were completely human instruments, you really did not know. You died never knowing whether that high priest had actually fulfilled his duties or not. With Jesus, you don't have to worry about it because he's a high priest forever. He doesn't turn it on and off. He will never be disqualified. And he is the only one qualified to become the permanent high priest for the human race. Nobody else is able to meet those qualifications. It's also one of the reasons, and I I don't want to bash Catholicism, but it's also one of the reasons that, that there is a problem with Roman Catholicism. Because there's exactly one priest, one, since Jesus. It's him. No human being deserves to be called priest, period. There's exactly one, and we all have the same one, and his name is Jesus. Everybody else, pastor, bishop, call him what you want. But priest, it's, it's not a title that should be any more used for human beings. It's already occupied, and there's only one of them. And I would encourage you in this, that you only have one high priest that will be accurate 100% of the time. Human priests have a tendency to be a little less than 100% accurate. Uh, I, I am a little less than 100% accurate. So if you come to me, you can expect at some point in time, you'll probably figure out that I'm human. Go directly to Jesus. Skip the middleman. And therefore, it says in verse 25, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. I love this. Because what it really says is Jesus never takes a day off. You're not going to, you know, wake up one morning and, you know, get a message from some heavenly emissary that, you know, shows up dressed in angelic garb and says, oh, by the way, Jesus wasn't on the job yesterday interceding for you, and so we have some problems. He's always interceding for you. If the high priest died, and technically if there was no high priest, there was no intercession. So you could be under the Old Testament law, and under the Old Testament system, there was a couple of periods of time where there was not a high priest officiating, and there hasn't been since A.D. 70. What have they been doing? The answer is, they haven't been doing without Jesus. There's only one priest. And he always lives to intercede for them, for you, for us. It's interesting, this word that's translated completely here in, in the Greek language, the Greek construction of the sentence, it means completely and absolutely. It's not just completely, but absolutely. In other words, it's the whole thing, and it's to the finish, the whole thing. It's not the whole thing as it exists now. It's the whole thing as it exists in eternity. In other words, he'll, he'll get you to heaven. Some people have a problem with that. 
I don't, because it's grace. And I need grace. I, I need Him to save me completely. Because if I was partially saved, and the rest of it is up to me, I am a dead man. If it was kind of a set of rules that I have to keep a bunch of things in order to be saved, in other words, the whole thing isn't on Jesus, I'm in trouble. I'm good for 90%. The 10% is more than enough to send me to eternity and damnation. And, and so when it says that he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, he, he's pointing at himself and he says, it all lies on me. I'll save you in your entirety, and I will save you eternally. You're good. You're golden. It's all okay in Christ Jesus, his Lord. You see, if you're a believer, you have to remember this, because there's times when the enemy comes and says, no, I didn't pay for that sin. You blow it. And probably not one of us in here hasn't blown it. The enemy comes, the first thing that happens is you get that condemnation, right? The enemy goes, no, you're not. Nah, you were never saved. It wasn't able to save somebody like you. Remember this verse. He is able to save completely, finitely and eternally, those who come to him. It's a beautiful picture of the assurance that we have in Christ Jesus. It's not a license for sin, by the way. And that will destroy your assurance, to be sure. But you've been saved by Christ. You were not saved by you. You made the decision to receive and believe. You did not do what it took to save you. He did that. In other words, it all lies on Him. It was a gift to you. But the work was done by Christ. No sin is too great for His salvation. Oh, when somebody comes, I've had people come to me. I've had people who have murdered people come to me and say, I don't think God could ever let me into heaven. I say, oh, yes, he can. Oh, yes, he can. If you'll receive and believe, if you'll repent of your sin and ask for forgiveness, he is faithful and just to, to forgive you and to cleanse you, and he will bring you into paradise because it lies on him. It's not what you have done on this earth or not done on this earth. It's what he did on the cross. A way better covenant. The old covenant would have scared me to death. I'd have been wandering around the wilderness. I would have been making Jesus sculptures or something out of rocks trying to earn my way. You know, it's like, Got to do something with my time because it doesn't go well if I don't. Man, once a year, just thinking that you might be okay with God. What a wonderful assurance we have now that that uh, we have that intercessor. And that word that's just translated intercessor is actually the word advocate. And, and the word that's translated there really is translated in a legal sense, rather like you have an attorney now in heaven. Standing before God every moment of every day pleading your case. Isn't that awesome? And the attorney never loses. He never loses. Your heavenly attorney before God, nope, that's on my account. It's all taken care of. Did it already. You can't find him guilty for that. I paid for it. It's over. It's done with. The answer to everything is Jesus made me whole. 
But it's also more than that. And this is why it's important, because in a day-to-day sense, it applies to your life that you're currently living as well. So it's not just heavenly, it's daily in your life. So that advocate is like having the world's best mechanic and an expert chef at every meal and a fisherman that's really good at every cast. It's having that information available to you 24-7, 365. Okay, I need an answer to this situation. I can go to my advocate and Jesus knows. Knows what to do, how to do it, what not to do, where to stay away. You see, you see, that's what it means to be under grace instead of under the law. Under the law, you had to go to the high priest. That was as good as you could get. And he'd give you some counsel or some wisdom after having studied. Remember the Holy Spirit this time, though active in the world in convicting men of sin and presenting what would be ultimately the gospel and as much as it was known, the Holy Spirit indwelt no one yet. So there was no high priest who was ever indwelt with the Holy Spirit. They understood who the Holy Spirit was, what the Holy Spirit was capable of doing, but until the day of Pentecost, not in anybody. Around, near, possibly upon, but not in. Now you have that dwelling, that, that power dwelling in you. That wisdom dwelling in you. Verse 26, such a high priest meets our need. This is from the NIV, and I want you to look at these characteristics. Such a high priest meets our need. I can tell you the old high priest didn't meet this list. One who is holy. That means Jesus knew absolutely no sin. He was perfectly fulfilled in that he was God. He required nothing of anyone. You see, the Old Testament high priests... That was not the case. They had to first sacrifice for themselves. They knew sin. Matter of fact, they were quite capable of sinning. He was holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. The only way to be set apart from sinners is to not be one of the human race, I might add. The only way to be set apart from sinners is to not be part of the human race. has to be somebody outside of the human race exalted above the heavens. Notice it says above the heavens, and that is a perfect literal rendering of the language here. In other words, his throne is above the heavens. Not in the heavens, above the heavens. It is heavenly. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. For he sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. In other words, what it says is Jesus offered himself for the sins of the Old Testament high priest. He was the only one that could actually cover them. All that time that they spent offering first sacrifices for themselves to clear their own mess up, and then to go in and offer them the sacrifices for others, Jesus obliterated everybody's in that he offered himself for them. So those 83 or 84 high priests that existed from the time of Aaron Until the time of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the one who actually interceded for all of them. None of them were ever perfectly taken care of until Jesus came and said, It is finished. He did so by his own indestructible life. Blameless. It means that he was without evil. He's completely innocent. That's why Pilate said what he said. 
He said, this man is innocent. We find no fault. There's nothing guilty about him. He has done nothing for which we should condemn him. It's also why Jesus didn't answer in his own defense. There was nothing to defend. He hadn't done anything. He was pure. That means he's undefiled. That there's no blemish of any kind, not in his mind, not in his heart, not in his motivation. You see, for us, sometimes we can fool people by having our lives relatively squared away on the outside, right? Can you imagine if people could read what's going on inside? How many people do you think fit the qualification of pure? That everything they have ever thought, the motivation for which they think it, is perfect in the eyes of a holy God. I'm, I'm thinking that's a small club. Not a lot of people are going to get in that particular group. Matter of fact, no people are going to get into that group. Set apart from sinners. That means that he wasn't of this creation. It means he wasn't a man as you and I know it. He was a God-man. He was absolutely divine, fully God, and fully man. He was Emmanuel, God with his people. Exalted above the heavens. He's greater than any of the high priests, greater than any human being, greater than any religion. He wasn't just another prophet like Islam teaches. He was God's only begotten son that came to take away the sins of the world. To finish what the Old Testament only alluded to. The high priest under the Old Covenant was basically just a sinful man like the rest of us who did a certain set of prescribed things that for a very short period of time made himself able, if you will, to represent mankind for a very short period of time. I've often wondered, because there's no, there's no recordation of how long the high priest actually stayed inside of the Holy of Holies that I've ever seen. There may be one, I just haven't seen it. But of the, of the records that I've seen, chiefly of the writings of some of the first century Roman historians, that it appears as though it literally was minutes. That they kind of popped in, you know, crossed themselves three times and ran back out. You know why that is? It's this, isn't it? He's probably in there confessing the sins of all the people. and the, That rotten Levi, I can't, you know. And you know how it is. Now draw your attention to this. How many, don't raise your hands. I want you to just think on it. How many of you have had some impure, completely ungodly thought while you've been sitting in church? It's all of you. All of you. I don't even, you don't need to raise your hands. It's all of you. Something that you should not probably ever be thinking about, you're in church, which is, you know, admittedly where you should feel closer to the Lord, right? And you're in here just sending your little brains out. That was the... I, Rick, I, I, am, I mind-melded with you. It's kind of a Vulcan thing. Yeah, so you can imagine a high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and the first thing he's doing, man, i got to get out of here. Not so much for Jesus, amen? He can stay in God's presence all the time. Why? Because he's not like us. He was tempted and tested in every way that you are, and yet without sin, Scripture says. Never sinned. He's never had a vile thought. He's never thought wrongly of anything ever.
And so when he died, because he died in your place, you get that righteousness representing you before God. Every time you sin, it's on the account of Jesus. His righteousness has been placed in your account. Atoned for. Taken away. What's left? Probably these Jewish people were asking to do. And the answer is quite simply nothing but receive it and believe it. That was news to them. Can you imagine how freeing that was? It's still freeing to people if they let it. A lot of people have a tough time actually being set free from religion. Well, I got to do this for God. No, you really don't have to. You should want to, but you don't have to. You're not better off with God. You, you don't occupy a higher place in heaven for, for any of those things. You're as near to God as you're going to get when you say yes to Jesus Christ because you can go into the Holy of Holies through Him. You're right there. You can get all the way there. The rest of the stuff, it's just blessings to you while you're here on this earth. It'll amount to crowns in heaven, but you're as close as you're ever going to get the moment you say yes. That's a whole lot different than living your life under the Old Testament law. Well, I don't know if I made my, my grain sacrifice this week. I'm pretty sure I forgot the yeast offering. You know, you know, I offered up two turtle doves, but I think it was two turtle doves and two baskets of sticks. And I think it was three sticks short. I don't know. Waiting and hoping for that to all hit. And finally, verse 28 for the law appoints as high priests, notice this, for the law appoints, the law appoints, underline that, the law appoints men who are weak. The law loves to appoint men who are weak. Why? For the same reason that you and I like to compare ourselves to other men. It makes us look good. You know, I can always point to somebody who's worse than I am, right? So if I appoint somebody, my standard is some guy, some man, some person, who is weak like I am, who has arms of flesh like I do, who has a mind just like mine, who is part of this human race, all I've done is appointed somebody who's no more qualified than I am, ultimately. You see, the law always loves men who are weak. The law always loves men who are weak. But the oath, which came after the law, appointed the Son. And because the Son is perfect, He has been made perfect forever. So you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about you finally figuring something out that can get you outside of Christ's ability to save you. It can't happen. If you can think it up, He died for it. You ever thought of that? There is nothing in the mind of man that can be thought up that Christ didn't die for. Not one thing. You could put three dozen Adolf Hitlers together and combine their lives, he could save them all. Any despicable thing that you can think of, Christ's blood is sufficient to cleanse. That's why it's a better covenant. Better doesn't quite do it, does it? It's the best. Better high priest, better hope, better covenant, just plain better. Amen? That's why we can draw near every day, because it's all on Jesus. 
And if you leave it in his hands and attempt to, to do your part, which is to simply be as much like him as you possibly can, you have this tremendous assurance you're going the right direction, and that better hope gets more visible to you every day. And pretty soon you're going, man, that better hope's right over there. You get to the end of your life, man, I can't wait to receive the fullness of that better hope. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we can just simply trust in Jesus. Lord, our only hope, not just a better hope, but our only hope. There was no way apart from you. There was never a way apart from you, Jesus. And We thank you for that. We thank you that we can trust and believe. And I want to pray, God, if there's somebody here tonight that's never made that profession of faith, hasn't just simply called upon your name and been saved, Lord, I pray that you'd convict them of their need, Lord, for a Savior. Your word's clear that no one gets to heaven but through you. There isn't another way. There's not another hope. There's only one hope, and that hope is the best hope, and it's in you, Jesus. We praise you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. Lord, pray that you would just touch us, Lord. Continue to strengthen us as we look forward to that day, one day when you're going to take us all home. Lord, help us to be fruitful in the meantime. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen.